Welcome to another episode of the Villanova English Department podcast. I'm speaking this week with Professor T.G. Akoma, and we are discussing Afropolitanism. I had a lot of fun with this conversation, and I hope you will too. We touch on globalization, race, identity, class, and many more topics besides. Plus, we spend a lot of time talking about Things Fall Apart, which I imagine is a familiar text for many of our listeners. One small note, there are a few wonky sound issues and weird cuts in this interview. I hope they don't disrupt too much from the conversation. So without further ado, here is Professor Chiji Okoma. All right, so I'm talking today with uh, Professor Chiji Akoma. Thanks so much for agreeing to speak with me today. Thank you. So can we start, uh, can you please tell me a little bit about yourself, such as your research and teaching interests and what led you to teaching literature? Mm. Yeah, so my research interest is in the field of African and African diaspora literatures. So literatures from the continent, uh, Africa, I should specify mostly Anglophone uh, literature from these areas, uh, although I do read and discuss um, literatures in other languages, but in translation, I don't have competencies in the myriad of languages in the continent. Uh, so if they're in translation, I do read them as well. Uh, so. As far as uh, the diaspora is concerned, I'm interested in spaces in the Caribbean and, and, and in the UK. Uh, so those are my areas of interest, uh, literatures from these areas. But I lately, not quite lately, but even within those literatures, I have been keen on exploring uh, issues pertaining to orality folklore, ideas around the transmission of oral traditions through the written text. So that uh, when I'm reading a, a novel like uh, Song of Solomon by Tony Morrison, I am interested in the kinds of folkloric dimensions of, of what's going on in the, in the deaf family uh, and the like. So those kinds of uh, explorations pertaining to orality, to folklore. In addition to that, I also very lately have been interested in uh, literatures in, in African languages. And, and again, I am not competent in many. I'm actually been interested in Igbo language literatures. These are literatures from where I come from in Nigeria, uh, the Igbo speaking world. It is actually the world of Things fall apart. Chinua Chibes novel. Yeah, uh, I'm from that area, and so I've been interested in ex examining some of the works, be it literate, be it novels or plays that have come out from that particular part of the world, written in Igbo language. Uh, and as it's a way for me of trying to balance the super attention we pay to novels like Chino Achebe's Things Fall Apart, written texts that are written in English language uh, over the ones that are in indigenous languages. So I've been looking at that. I've been looking at these uh, Igbo language texts you know, lately. As far as what took me or what 
brought me to to teaching um uh i'll say one my father uh, some, somehow these things always end up being about fathers <laughs> you know? uh, but my father was an english major uh, one of the earliest in this community to go to college uh, and uh, by the time uh, by the time i started reading very very young he was already pumping in so many literary works into my into my into my world um, and so by the time it came to going to college, uh, like in the UK, Nigeria, you have to declare a major, you are admitted into a major uh, going to the university. You don't like as a freshman, right? Undeclared. Yeah, yeah, you go in yes. to do something, right? Yeah, yeah. Yes, yes, you admitted a major right away. So uh, yeah, I had to make a choice, I had to decide. and. My dad said, of course, you're going to do English. <laughs> you know, it was as simple as that. Uh, and I said, OK, why not? So I, I was admitted to do English, and, and I really, really loved it. It was fantastic, you know, entering into, into these worlds, into these spaces, the realm of the ancient marina, uh, things like that, the deserted village. Uh, I think that's Oliver Goldsmith also, and and reading many of these other texts out there, the world of the Caribbean, and just my eyes were opened to to the reality because before then we didn't really know much about slave trade, you know, the entire transatlantic slave trade and these vast community of 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 persons of African descent outside of the continent. So reading. Uh, some of these narratives of, of persons in the diaspora, in their communities out there, it was really fascinating to me, and I was very keen on doing that. So it was like the path was, was set. I'll do my master's and ultimately do a PhD in English, and, and I've loved it since, you know, it's just what I love doing. Uh, but I will say it was that uh, again that planted that whole idea in my head to pursue this as a career, and it's been good. That, that that's exciting. It sounds like um, would you say that you found a sense of connection in some of those texts from those diasporic folks? Yes, yes. Um, there was you know it's there was. Uh, I think what really, really fascinated me was this idea of experiencing, having a sense that they are alluding to something African. And yet, uh, and so you got that sense, if you're an African, you got that sense that uh, these people are not far from you. And yet there was a newness to it because because it's not 100% African as to where the diasporic experience by the very nature of diaspora is always, is always, um, is always heterogeneous. It's always a hybrid. And, and, and so you, there's something familiar there, and yet there's something absolutely new and different that is informed by that diasporic existence. And so that, it was like adding something more to whatever I knew or I experienced as, as an African uh, by encountering these uh, diasporic cultures. And so that was something that 
um, that was something that really, 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 really uh, fascinated me, and it still remains so. Um, and that was also very much why I became very interested in folklore, in, in African diaspora folklore, or the constructions of folkloric texts uh, in, in the diaspora. Because that was one medium where one could, in fact, see the ways, the convergences of the continental African experience and the diasporic African experience, and the ways they also differ in, in, in very, very uh, interesting ways. Did you find, um, and I, what you're saying makes me think about some of the diasporic things and, and folkloric things that I've experienced, um, sort of more within the Irish American community, that there are these kind of buried things that sometimes come up. Did you find that there's more connection within the folklore than makes it into more kind of printed literature? Are people more, is there more of that in the folklore? There is. Oh, there, there is. Um, there is. I think, for example, uh, here in the United States, um, when you study, when you study, uh, see, the slavery, the era of slavery, if you study plantation societies, the cultures that came out within, you know, the plantation, within the walk, you know, within the fences of, of the plantation, um, the ways by which the, the slaves entertained themselves, the ways by which they worshipped, the ways by which they they they, they related to to themselves, uh, you you got this sense that these were things. Or I mean, of course, the spirituals and the like, the the songs, the work songs. Uh, you you got this sense that these are direct transplants, as it were, of 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 that particular of, of a particular world outside of the U.S. But even then, um, like I said, you read a novelist like Morrison, and, and you have these, or you read um, um, Zora Neale Hurston, and you find African American artists who writers who are, are very keen on identifying the folkloric precedents or the folkloric antecedents, if you will, of for for their writing. Um, in the case of Zoranya Hurston, in fact, it's almost as though she wants to transpose the folkloric world uh, into, into the written form. So I, I, I don't necessarily see a distinction, or there is a distinction, but, but it's one where what is produced or what is recreated in the oral form somehow founds finds its way into the written text. Um, but there is no doubt that if you are trying to establish, or if you are trying to say, all right, let's get fully the, the folkloric traditions, you, know, you will have to go into the world of oral performance uh, as, as your first port of call, if you will. Um, you, know, you have to start there before then you can begin to see the, ver the various ways by which the written text uh, form is, is certainly a space where it is quite rich. 
one can say hardly mediated by the burden of writing. So um, I, I sort of asked a bunch of follow-up questions because I'm, I'm very interested in the, in the folklore stuff, but I want to try and get us back to what we had intended to talk about today, which is this theory of Afropolitanism and globalization, which is the area of theory that you have been teaching about this term. So I know this is not a reasonable ask, but could you give us a capsule, capsule definition for Afropolitanism and for globalization? Well, yeah, um, Afropolitanism, I think there, this is, there is the idea which Africans see themselves. And so there is, you know, I, I wanted to say the way, you know, I wanted to say, I want to emphasize this idea of Africans seeing themselves versus the way Africans are seen, because that uh, the latter will, will, will change the, the perspective, will place the agency on whoever is doing the scene, uh, which is not what Afropolitanism is about. It's about the way that the Afropolitan, the one, the African, uh, operates within the metropole, within, within this, this cosmopolitan uh, world that is that it, all right, the way the African sees them within the yep. is so think about it as a kind of uh, pop cultural construct pop culture, you know, uh, popular culture construct, um, a way of seeing uh, Africans and the way Africans see themselves informed. And, and that way of seeing is informed by a myriad of voluntary transnational or even transcontinental migrations. I, I think, you know, you understand Afropolitanism within, mostly essentially within the, the realm of migrations, um, voluntary migrations um, that, that speak, that go beyond Africa or beyond African nation states and launch into the rest of the world, Europe, the Americas and the like. And so, the way these new movements, these new transnational, transcontinental movements operate within urban or within cosmopolitan cities, centers of the world, uh, in the New Yorks of the world, in the Paris of the world, in the Londons of the world, in the Stockholms of the world. So these, these spaces, these super or uber cosmopolitan centers of the world, um, Africans operating in those spaces. So there is a, a measure. So if you think about that particular idea, cosmopolitanism, centers of the world, you are invariably going to be discussing issues around class. Um, who gets to operate, who gets to move out from a place like Joburg, Johannesburg, who gets to move out from a place like Lagos, from Accra uh, to enter into New York City, 
and operate in New York City as to a New York City where they are world. You know, who, who gets to operate there and move from New York City to arrive in Paris and still pick up on French, enter into that space and want to be part of the cultural, uh, part of the conversation, the cultural conversation in Paris, even though one is an African, we're an African. And, and so, and the answer would be, it's not everybody that can make that movement or that is, that is equipped to make that movement or is capable of making that movement. So in a way then, Afropolitanism is located in an economic, there is an economic premise that informs this particular kind of sensibility. And the sensibility is that the African living uh, who lives, the African who lives the world of Lagos, uh, who lives uh, the world of, of Nairobi, and arrives in, in Paris and is, comfortable in, and is comfortable in operating in Paris. And this African, therefore, um, wants to affirm that, that that moment when they are in Paris is also an African moment. That, that is the claim that the Afropolitan is, 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 is making. The idea that the arrival of the African in that Parisian world um, is not about visiting Paris and experiencing Paris, but it's a way of putting a mark on the African in that Parisian space. So, so is that claim, therefore, Afropolitanism is very much a way of saying, this is the African perspective or interpretation or experience of operating in these super cultural cosmopolitan uh, spaces. So that's one, that is part of what Afropolitanism addresses, the myriad of ways in which these, these understanding or these, these representation or this articulation of movement uh, is concerned. But the other part of it is one, and it's related to that, is our 21st century way of, of speaking against essentialism. Uh, because again, you think about Baba, you know, you think about Selassie's work. Uh, and, and it's this idea that, um, that this new breed of Africans, do not hold on, that they don't hold on to their ethnicities tightly. Um, the, it's not so much about affirming, a man, I am an evil man, or I am an Ishikiri person. Uh, it, they don't, they don't, they don't wear it tightly on themselves. They wear it loosely, if you will. Um, and so, so that they can then operate in these other spaces uh, as easily as though they were in Accra, as easily as though they were, you know, in Lusaka, uh, wherever they may find themselves, that they, they want to be part of that space. It isn't assimilation, to be very clear, that they don't want to disappear in these spaces, in these other places, as much as they, they, they want, part of what Afropolitanism is affirming is that the African world, or that the African is, is highly adaptable, that the African is, you know, wants to assume it, 
that their Africanness, the Africanness is assumed, is a given, if you will. Um, they, they won't affirm it or they won't uh, want to draw unnecessary attention, undue attention to it. It is just a given, it's there. Um, and so they can be in Paris, they can be in London, and they can be there, enjoy whatever there is possible there, while also very much looking around for whatever may be the, the Africans or the African, you know, um, uh, African spaces, even in those places. So, so this idea then is one that looks at the notion of African ethnicity, African identity loosely. Uh, it goes against that. So uh, it's, uh, like I said, it's anti-essentialist, you know, and to the extent that um, it doesn't say there is some kind of core being, of, you know, of being African in the world, you know, and the African being in the world. Uh, there isn't some kind of irreducible thing that makes them African, you know, they, they, they don't want that, which is, of course, different from earlier generations. Uh, if you think about the way sometimes in, in some political circles or even cultural circles, we want to say we, we the black person, the African wants to say, I'm black, I'm proud, uh, I'm an African, watch me now, I'm a black person. This kind of affirmation and direct affirmation, direct declaration of blackness, of Africanness. Uh, think about the Negritude movement of the 40s, of the 1940s, uh, where people like Leon Damar, uh, Leopold Sedat Senghor, and the rest of them, they were very much interested in defining this thing called blackness, uh, the beauties of it. Uh, it, will, it very much informed that world. Uh, so, and it had its value, and there is still the value even today. Uh, but for the Afropolitan, thank you very much. I'm, I'm fine. I know who I am. I know I'm an African, uh, but I'm moving on. I'm moving within different spaces where um, I would not necessarily want to make that Africanness the centerpiece of who I am. So it's an, a kind of anti-essentialist definition of Africa, which is helpful uh, in many other ways beyond just you know, the affirmation of one's ethnic identity. It seems there's a looseness to it, but also a great self-confidence. Like we have the confidence to be rather loose about this identity. Yes. Absolutely. Um, I, I, I want to think about it like, you know, when uh, Langston Hughes in the 20s, when the so-called coming out party uh, in his essay, The Negro Artist and the Racial Mountain, and, and where he says, well, if Black people like what we, what we present about ourselves, that's great. If they don't, it doesn't matter if white folks like what we are saying about ourselves, if they like it, great. If they don't, that's okay. Uh, but he said, he says, you know, we intend to they, you know, represent, to express their individual dark skin selves the way they know how. Um, and I, I think 
there it is about the representation of the yeah, individual dark-skinned self. Uh, but it seems to me that the Afropolitan is saying the emphasis is not necessarily on that dark-skinned self as much as here we are. If you like what you see, more power to you. If you don't, more power to you. I think that is where the little difference is, but it, it comes down to the same idea of refusing to follow a particular narrative, to refusing to bring or bring to the fore a specific image of the African, uh, but more interested in representing the African as a moving migratory entity who enters into different spaces in the world. The idea of the world is the space of the African uh, and everywhere is home and everywhere is one where they, they want to also embrace as home. Uh, I think that is where the Afropolitan uh, sensibility locates itself uh, very, very prominently. So how does this Afropolitan concept filter into or inform literature? That's a great question. Um, I think it comes, it filters itself in, on two levels. Uh, we are, I think about myself, for example, as a teacher of African literatures and Afro-Diasporic literatures. And of course, uh, and for, for me, any time I open a you know a novel from these within that within these subject area these uh, subject areas, I I just cannot read that text in isolation. I would like to understand the historical circumstances of that of that text. I would like to understand the politics that informs that text. I would like to very much therefore locate that text within some kind of cultural or historical or even political context. And, 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 and so uh, if it is about, again, to return to the novel that most of us or many of us will be very familiar with when it talks about African literature, things fall apart. Um, if we we'll pick up a novel like Things Fall Apart, we, we can explore to all the dimensions of the father-son complex that informs the relationship between Okonkwo and his father, Onoka. Uh, the, we can speak about the, the, the way in which the novel is wrestling with what constitutes strength. Uh, Onoka, you know, or rather Okonkwo looks at the life of his father, Onoka, and all he sees is a failed man, a man who didn't take on any title, a man who, who didn't have any position, any position of prominence in the society, a man who died an abject death, even though he wasn't on you know, he suffered, he had a disease and they had to cast him away. But, but Okunko sees all these things as indicators of, of failure as indicators of weakness, manliness, you know. And, and so he decides that he's gonna be everything that his father was, wasn't. So he will, he will work very hard to rise to prominence, he will work very hard 
to be seen as a man who you dare not challenge. He will grow up to be the best wrestler in, in the entire village, in the, among the nine villages. So there are all these, and of course, he will rise to be a great farmer and who would not, and a father who would not tolerate any sign of weakness from his children, especially his male sons. So we can talk about all that. You also know that confront, we are always confronted with understanding these other dimensions to it. The world of that novel before the arrival of the missionaries, before the arrival of the Europeans. And, and so all these other things may be going on, but we, but we, but we have to face this reality of the pre-missionary, pre-colonial moment or period in the text versus what happens after. That is where the political comes in. And, and in thinking about the pre and the post uh, Igbo world in that novel, you end up having to say, all right, these are the ethos of the Igbo society before the missionaries arrived. These are their cherished traditions before the, before the Europeans arrived. And, and you examine that. I think that what Afropolitanism will do is to say, frankly, there isn't much basis for the for prioritizing or privileging this discussion and examination and exploration of the pre-Igbo world. Um, that it, it may not be necessary for us to understand that, to, to, to have a groundedness in that as the basis for understanding then why Okunkwa resists the missionaries, resists the Europeans. Um, that, that you can look at it from that moment. Okay, so here is a new player in town, a new force in town. They, they seem to have, they have the means, they have the power, they, 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 they have guns and the like, and they can, they can really suppress uh, dissent in many ways. So what do you do? Um, you, can, you can look at that and you say, all right, and Achebe is very smart, you know, very skilled as a storyteller, that he, he leaves us enough uh, basis, he gives us enough basis to, to think outside of the pre-Ibo world, because in that novel, Okunkwa is this key man, if you will, uh, super masculine kind of person. That's how he frames himself. But he also has a good friend, Obi Erika, who is also a successful you know, farmer, who is also a prominent person in the community, who is also a warrior like, like Okunkwa. But Obi Erika thinks things in a different way. He has a kind of pragmatism. You see, Obirika has a kind of pragmatism that enables him to, to look at nuances, to look at, to look at the silver lining in dark clouds, as it were. And, uh, and that ability to take a nuanced view of the arrival of of this new power as you know in the community is something that is lacking by Okobo. I would like to suggest then that the that in a way Obirika will operate 
very well as a cosmopolitan or even an Afropolitan person if he were to leave the world of uh, of uh, home warfare and you know and leave that space to enter other places because he understands the dynamism of of encounters of cultural encounters uh, and he's willing and capable of of making some all kinds of distinctions so in literature then the afropolitan view or mindset or sensibility can very well then enable us to enter any text any literary work uh, in, in a kind of broad, in a very broad way to understand the, peculi the peculiarities of, of the world of that text. And yet, uh, not to latch on to those peculiarities as the essence of the text, but to in fact explore all the other ways by which that, that, that text could very well speak to other ideas, to other worlds to other constructs of knowledge, to other bodies of knowledge. That is my, that is the way I read it. So again, to return to the earlier notion about um, a kind of anti-essentialist reading uh, of the African world, I think it brings us into this new, we can transpose that anti-essentialism to the ways we read, uh, to the ways we understand character development, to the way we understand the, how a writer manipulates language uh, to different effect, effects um, beyond what it may even be announcing or, you know, to itself. So that is how I see that coming in. But it's also one, and I'll, and I'll shut up after this. <laughs> uh, but, but I also think that um, that Afropolitan sensibility enables us also to think about should almost in the way we understand even black diaspora all right uh, there is there is a strong political inclination one might think about locating the diaspora within of course that qualifier there or blackness and 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 the Afropolitan, the Afropolitan sensibility will open the parameters a little bit wider as far as how we understand blackness, how we understand Africanness, especially in the context of a myriad of cultures, in the context of new spaces, you know, host lands, you know, in diaspora studies, we talk about host lands and the homeland. Um, and so the host land, which is the site of the diaspora community, uh, cannot be isolated. You cannot, you cannot separate the diaspora community from the host land. Uh, it is, it is us the host land that that creates the conditions that inform the diasporic community. Uh, the diasporic community is always is constantly constantly reacting, responding to that host land uh, while also imagining or while also having the homeland in their view. But it, it is the reality of the host land that very much, that very much uh, <laughs> informs the quotidian uh, construct of their being in the world. So uh, if one 
kept looking at the, uh, you know, at the homeland as a source of inspiration or as the arbiter or as the judge of what constitutes the diasporic community, one will be missing a lot. And I think uh, the Afropolitan argument about the entire world being their space, being their cultural space, is a very liberating one. So that it also helps us then to, to change or maybe not change as much as it helps us to uh, take a different perspective on what constitutes diaspora within that kind of context. And that's a very different perspective than the one that I was taught something like Things Fall Apart with, which was a very post-colonial read where the general perspective was this is a book about the evils of the British colonial system and the tragedy of what happened to the traditional Igbo way of life and Okonkwo yeah. was a tragic Christ-like figure. And what you're describing is a much more complex picture. In some ways, one that would, if you took it too far, it would almost be victim-blaming Okonkwo in a sense. But it also seems to provide a lot of liberation for people to have a more complicated relationship with colonial powers, with history, with um, the West broadly, what have you. Yeah, um, I, I, and I, that's a great, that's, that's a very good observation, Mike, because indeed, um, indeed, that, that it's, it's a, I would want to suggest that, in fact, that Achebe very much anticipates that particular kind of reading. Um, it's almost reductionist when you read, you know, to think about that novel purely as, okay, this is the, this is the evil of colonialism and the Western arrival in Africa. And it was bad. Let's, <laughs> let's be very clear about that. Yeah, and the novel shows... Yeah, we're not saying it wasn't bad. No, yeah. right. You know, but, but is that even when... It, and there are some... This is not original to me. Others have made... Some others have made this argument that within the novel itself, Achebe <laughs> creates gives us a number of opportunities to see that uh, Okunkwo, for all his claims to being the quintessential evil man, uh, isn't. Or that in fact, that, that he has his own view, Okunkwo's own notion about what it means to be an evil man. Uh, is very much skewed because again, remember that earlier discussion I was having, because he is himself is, is harassed by the fear of being thought that he's embarrassed about his own father. And, and so he leans or he swings to an extreme, you know, side of, of evil masculinity. Uh, and a masculinity which his friend, Obi Erika, um, very much isn't into. And, and that is captured in, you know, I, I love talking about this full apart. And it's captured in the moment in the novel Okonkwo against the council of the oldest man in the village uh, who tells him, hey, the Oracle of the Hills and Caves has decided that Ikemefuna, the young man, the young ransom that is kept in Okonkwo's household, that the Oracle has declared that Ikemefuna has to be sacrificed. He has to be, he has to be killed. Um, and, and so, don't have a hand in it. 
that kid calls you father. You are not his biological father, but he calls you father. Therefore, there is an ethical, there's an ethical responsibility that is placed upon you that you are his father. And therefore, that ethical responsibility that a father doesn't kill their, their own son, doesn't kill his own son. And so that boy calls you father, don't have a hand in his death. But Okumpo, of course, he feels that he doesn't want to be thought weak. What kind of man, you know, wouldn't be part of the execution party? Uh, even if, especially for this boy that came from another village. Yeah, he calls me father, but he's not really my son. Uh, whatever the case, I should be part of, uh, I should be part of the execution party. And so he goes along, he goes along with, with, with this, with the mission. He is smart, or he thinks he's smart enough to stay at the very end as they are forming into, into a path, you know, a, a path in the, in the forest where they have to be a, in a single line. He stays at the very end of the, of the path uh, so that whoever is behind, he came with would be the one to do the execution. And, but he will be part of that party, but he wouldn't be the one. And it seems like a safe bet. So he's way be at the back. The person that does the execution misses that is supposed to use the machete. This is a little bit graphic, but we're talking about the novel. Uh, the person that is supposed to do the execution misses, and the poor kid, he came of course, he knows that his father, the man he calls his father, is way back. He runs back, you know, looking for savior, you know, from his father. And Okonkwo, the, the novel says, narrative says that he's, he's dazed with fear. And he, he ends up being the one that, that executes Ikemefina. Now, um, he's, you know, he's done it. Uh, being a human being, he feels it. He couldn't eat for a couple of days. And then he goes to see his friend, Obirika. And he's all feeling masculine and, you know, all full of himself because Obirika didn't go on that, on that mission. And he goes to Obirika and says, dude, I don't understand. Why didn't you come, you know? Uh, why didn't you come and be part of the execution? Uh, you know, that is what the leaders of the land. And Obirika is like, yeah, I didn't go because uh, I didn't want to. I had better things to do, <laughs> you know? Uh, Okobo is feeling some kind of indictment in that voice. He says, Obirika, uh, you seem to be suggesting, you seem to be saying that we shouldn't obey what the oracle said we should do. And this is where it becomes very interesting. Obirika says, well, if the oracle says that my son should be sacrificed, I'm not going to dispute it, you see? I would not say Oracle is strong. No, why would I do that? I believe in the Oracle. I'm not going to dispute that particular call or that particular judgment, but I will not be the one to do the execution. The Oracle has, will have to find or do its own execution. I won't dispute the fact that my son should be sacrificed, but I won't be the one to be the Abraham or whoever that was, you know, in scripture who, who takes the knife, you know, to go for the throat of Isaac. No, he says, you have to do that. You know, the oracle have to do that. He says, so right there is that pragmatism that Okonkwo and nuance that Okonkwo 
doesn't have. So, and, and it's that same sensibility, therefore, that informs Obiereke and the way he responds through to this uh, African, to, this, to the arrival of the missionaries. He doesn't believe their religion. He thinks it's all crazy to say uh, there is God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Ghost. But you have a father, you have a son, but you don't have a mother. You know, it's like, how does that work? You know, if you have a father, you have a son, where is the mom in the, in the picture? I think you talk about some holy... So he doesn't... Fair make question. Yeah. <laughs> you know, so so, he's, so he, he thinks about this. And so there's so much foolishness in it. But he also sees that it gives him a way. Uh, because before the arrival of the missionaries, before the arrival of the Europeans, in Igbo society, twins were sacrificed, were cast away. Their twins were considered aberrations. The Igbo world is a world that fully uh, recognizes the individuality that every human being is unique. There are no doubles. You know, the chi, uh, the, 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 the being, the center of being of, of humans is so unique to each person, therefore, that it cannot be doubled, you see. And it's only, and the expression is that it's only cows and goats and chickens that produce in multiples. Humans produce one at a time. It's unique because you are unique. And so when a twin arrives, it, there's everything wrong with that picture, you see. So it, something is so wrong, therefore, that you must throw them away, cast them away from the community. The Europeans arrive said, no, 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 don't think it that way. It actually means that you are having double the blessings of every child. And so Obierica then, sees this new teaching, and to him it's very comforting because in the past he had had to cast away one of, you know, some twins that his wife, that, that he had. And, and so he says, okay, I can buy into this. I can, I can deal with this. I can live with this. So there is a kind of pragmatism, therefore, of saying the foolishness of that theology, of that theology, of that religion may be quite evident, but they also have something good that they are bringing into the community, and it's something worth listening to, something worth uh, paying attention to, something worth embracing. That, you know, it's not necessarily Afropolitan, you know, sensibility as much as one where the pragmatism of the moment, the pragmatism which allows for a very informed engagement with new cultural spaces, with new cultural forces is possible. And I think that is, that is, that is part of what the Afropolitan uh, world is articulating in, on a grander scale. Uh, I'm an African in New York. I'm an African in Zambia. I'm an African in Switzerland. Um, and I can roll with it. I can eat the African cuisine in New York. And I can also eat whatever New Yorkers you know, offer as as their, as their best meals, and I can roll with them without turning my nose at either. So I think that is part of what is implicated there. So we're, we're talking around this piece, Bye um, Bye uh, uh, Babar by Taye Selassie, and it, it came out yes. in 2000, 2005. Five. And it, it, it talks about the changes in how Africans have been represented from the Eddie Murphy movie, Coming to America, to the crowning of a Nigerian Miss World in 2001. So 
what's happened since? We're in 2020. Um, how do you think representations of Africans have changed from the time this piece came out? That's a good question. Uh, what can I say? Uh, what has happened is Chibaman Dangozi Adichie has happened. Uh, you know, uh, and every other writers in that in that tradition. Uh, so Nadifa Mohammed, for example, Helen Oyeyemi uh, is another great person that I've written. Uh, Aminata Fauna, uh, Sierra Leonean. Uh, there's been, and of course, there is uh, Chigozie uh, Obioma, uh, who published uh, The Fisherman uh, two years or so ago. Uh, so a lot of writers have emerged from the continent uh, since 2000 in, in this new century. Uh, and these are writers, most of them actually, they're, they're writers who make their living or who are existing or operating in these centers. Uh, the persons I just mentioned, uh, someone like Adichie moves, moves literally across from the US to Nigeria and the UK. She moves in these spaces, she lives in these spaces, uh, many parts of, you know, for the most part of the year. Um, and so the kind of isolation, not isolation, but the kind of limited movements, the kind of permanence of location, which used to inform the writers of, of say the 20th century, uh, it's not quite the case with these. These are very mobile writers, young individuals who, therefore, um, who are very comfortable in these different cultural global centers or these global cultural centers. And I, I'm, I'm not very sure if it is a function of things changing from 2005 to 2020. It's 15 years. That can be a long time, but it can also be a very small one in the, in the grand scheme of cultural movements and transformations. But I think that what, what is becoming more and more uh, evident, uh, what many of us, many scholars of African and African diaspora literatures, what is becoming very, very uh, common for us is that is to identify that we cannot really talk about African literature only in the context of realities, representations, depictions that are located in Africa. African literature, you know, so I remember, not that I remember, but in the early discussions, in the early discourses on African literature in the 1940s and 50s, certainly in the 60s, people, many critics, many scholars were always, what is African literature? People would like to say, ah, it's going to be about Africans, about Africa, uh, and it's going to be by Africans, something to that effect. So it, it was just this emphasis on the Africanness of the text. Um, and so you find writers trying to drop in some African words, African language words in them, uh, and things like that, just to make sure that you don't miss their Africanness. But now we, but we now we do know 
uh, that Africans are writing from these new locations, from these new global spaces. Uh, so that when you read Adichie, when you read Americana, for example, um, yeah, it's, it's, it's a Nigerian character, Nigerian characters. Uh, it's about Nigeria in a way, but it's also about America, for example. It's also about, you know, it's also about Britain. And, and, and these are all legitimate dimensions or these are all legitimate explorations of what it means to be African in the world today. Uh, it is it's a new kind of sensibility, it's a new representation that goes beyond the borders, beyond the continental borders to say African experience, African representation of that experience is one that we can place within a global framework, that we can place in a global framework and it still retains its Africanness, even in these seemingly foreign spaces. So that is indeed, that is very much where we are. Um, and the Afropolitan will, will hear that and say, uh-huh, that's exactly you know, what they're trying to affirm. So I was struck when Selassie discussed how Afro, Afropolitans see their own race whether they, they see themselves as black or biracial or none, none of the above, and how he, he describes this as a, a political decision in part shaped by um, external factors. So what are the different ways that you see Afropolitan writers and thinkers thinking about their own race and, and what factors shape those, those conceptions? Oh, that's, that's a good one. That's a loaded, really good loaded question. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, I mean, this, my first, my first start about that will say, well, take us back to what I had said earlier on about the class question, the class issue that there's a class dimension to, um, to, to Afropolitanism in a way. Um, and so who are these individuals, at least the way they, the way in Selassie's essay, she talks about it. It's, you, these are individuals, these are Africans, some of them, and we are using very broad strokes here, uh, whose parents, you know, father or mother uh, has left his work, you say, in the diplomatic corps and, and is sent to, to the yeah, African country's um, embassy in Europe. And, and there they meet their spouse, who is probably from that part of the world, from, from, from that European or wherever it is that they find themselves, uh, and they're married. And so dad is Kenyan, mom is Swiss. And here comes our Afropolitan, you know, biracial. Um, well, dad is Kenyan, mom is Nigerian. Uh, they met in graduate school also, and here comes the Afropolitan. And, and suddenly you find these families, you, you find these persons who carry binational, biracial, by so many bias uh, kinds of, you know, of identities. Um, and so on a very practical level, uh, the kind of, of ethnic the kind of ethnic uh, purity, quote unquote, purity, which 
which is also part of one of the hangups of, of African, you know, identity and nationalist identities and like, uh, is secondary. Uh, it's not, and it's not only the fact that, you know, they are coming from by national and by racial and by whatever cultural or by religious uh, identities, they are forging new identities. It's also that this new identity is also operating or it's also happening in a space that is removed from Africa. You know, so he or she is born in London, is born in Philadelphia uh, and the like, uh, a different language as well, a different cultural context, and it is possible they all stayed there or at a point, mom and dad will return to the homeland um, and most times they stay back in that place where they were born, either for school or whatever. And so uh, it creates, therefore, it's, so it's a different kind of an African. It's a different kind of way of, of constructing themselves as Africans. Uh, if they're lucky, mom or dad or both, we are speaking to them in, their, in an African language, they'll pick up on that. And they'll also be speaking language, they're French, they'll pick up on that. Uh, they went to an international school there, wherever they are, school for, for diplomats and the like, and they pick up another language or they learn some other language. So there is this, a kind of worldview, there's a kind of sensibility that is baked into their existence from the get-go. And that releases them, in a way, uh, from whatever we may consider to be the hang-ups of a monocultural or monoracial or mono-ethnic um, identity. And I think that is part of what then we see in, in the way that they respond, in the way that they, they define their existence or the way that they define their, who they are. Now, uh, does it therefore make this sensibility, does it therefore make this, this hybrid, this more multinational, multicultural definition of Africanness more legit? No. Um, what you find out for is that they, they are in these new spaces where, in these new spaces, cultural centers of the world, where they gain, where they're able to use or utilize the resources of these spaces. Um, they gain prominence. Um, they, they, they have the Western media, they have the Western academe uh, right there, and they're, they're reachable. And so we talk about African literature through their own representations because they're, they're, you, know, you can pick up a phone and call them, you don't have to dial anything internationally, they're right there before you. So uh, we are therefore more likely to speak and write about them to read their works in our American and Western societies classrooms, we're more likely to do that than to look for that writer in Lusaka, again, that writer in Cameroon, who is doing phenomenal work, but doesn't have access to, you know, uh, to, to the publishers here. And uh, working with the publisher there in, in, there in Cameroon, who can barely print 
you know, 2,000 copies of a book, a thousand copies of a book. Uh, the resources are so limited. And, and it's being circulated. They don't have the circulation distribution network to bring that book to us uh, over here. So we, we resort to the one Random House publishes and sends it out to professors for free as we had just requested exam copy and it lands for you. You read and, and you toss it or you, you, you adopt it. Uh, so it's easy. We read them and they're great writers. So we talk about them more than we do about that struggling writer or that publisher back on the continent. So, so, so it creates its own. That is why there is an economic, uh, there's an economic, or what I call a class, you know, dimension to the Afropolitan construct, to, to, to the way also, not just that Afropolitan construct in itself, but the way if you follow the logic of that mindset or that philosophy, uh, we may it also give us a skewed notion or sense of of the of of, of the African world of what it means to be an African, um, because as liberating as it is to think about the African as part of every space that they find themselves, it also it can make us to be blind to uh, the kinds of residuals of the colonial encounter, the residuals of the colonial experience of slavery and the like that folks in Africa are still dealing with. Uh, some of them are self-imposed or uh, some of them are self-inflicted. Other ones are in fact, indeed, the residuals, you know, all of that particular, you know, uh, 19th century, 18th century encounter uh, experience with the West. Uh, on the on the continent, I don't remember if I was even answering the question you were asking. Um, well, I mean, uh, so yeah, I think because I, I was sort of asking about how they how they see themselves, but I, I think it all it's all related, right? Because it's about how they see themselves, but how they're seen by others, and then the access they have to represent themselves. Yes, you know? and mm -hmm. and I, I, I what I hear you talking about in a sense is there their privilege, you know, geographic, linguistic, economic, to, to kind of get the microphone and communicate something, right? Yes, yes. And, and, I, and I regret that there is also something of a broad brush, you know, uh, yeah. that I'm using there, because there are still, uh, and I think it's one of the things, one of the aspects that uh, another scholar like Simon Candy will bring up, which is, um, so you have this Afropolitan, but you also have this, you know, Somali refugee uh, in Minnesota, you know, in Minneapolis, and they, he too or she too is, is an African, and he and they come into this space and, and they're looking at the world, you know, they're looking at that the the world of Minneapolis, this American world that they find themselves, and they don't have the means to enter into that space, uh, you know, in any kind of, in, in, the, in the way that the Afropolitan it does. Uh, they don't have the facility of language. They don't speak English, say. Um, they, they are refugees. And so maybe they didn't even finish school back in Somalia, back in Sudan or Kenya or wherever they're coming from. And they're stuck here and they're here now. And, where do they fit? 
what kinds of opportunities are there? Can't you know? So suddenly, for them, the best thing you could do for them, or what they invariably you know respond to, is longing for something familiar, longing for that Sudanese word, for that Sudanese meal, for that Sudanese language, for that you know whatever it is that they have there, with all the quote-unquote garbage that comes from that kind of ethnic pride. And so there's a dissonance between being here in this, in this developed world, uh, so-called space of opportunity, and longing for a place that they left because things weren't okay there, things were in crisis there. So it's a, it's a kind of dissonance. And, and I'm trying to insist on reproducing that other world here, not because, not for any other reason than because it is familiar, because that is what is possible. They, they can't speak in this space here. They don't have access to whatever may be the luxuries or the quote unquote finer dimensions of the world here. So there is not African. That African is also here living, existing uh, simultaneously with the Afropolitan African, who is also an African, but who is operating in a different space, in different cultural circles, in different economic circles, two Africans in the same space, but with a very two different perspectives or, or definitions of what it means to be an African. And so that is where that whole class or that whole economic dimension to, to this Afropolitan sensibility um, comes into play. Will there be a moment where that refugee, that African refugee in Minneapolis moves over and begins to appreciate the, 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 the Midwestern world, the way that the Afropolitan does? Maybe. But what if it doesn't happen? What if something more adverse takes place so much that they don't meet? What then does it speak? Or what then does it say about the Afropolitan mood of constructing the world, of constructing the African world? It's limited. And, and that is one, so that is always a kind of, I think that, that particular point or fact is one that one must always bear in mind when speaking about the pleasures of exile, or rather when talking about the pleasures of the Afropolitan uh, mindset. So it's, it's almost like a luxury, which, which that other African operating also in this in these place and in such other places. Uh, must always, we must always bear that in mind as we look at these two realities, among others, uh, that define place and the idea of the African in the 21st century. Okay, well, I think that that circles us back in a way to the, the complexity of this concept. And, and I think um, that's probably a pretty good place to leave it. So um, T.G. Koma, thank you so much for talking with me today. Hey, Mike, thank you so much. It's been a delight. Yeah, it's, it's, it's been great. I hope you're hope you're doing well. And uh, getting through this this COVID situation and, and this. Hey. Yep.
Yep, I hope the same for you too. It's been good. It's been good. All right, well, thanks for making time for me today. Sure, Mike. Thank you.